Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Good morning and welcome to IRC Book Club, the show that hopefully will not be removed from Spotify. I would imagine uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, et al. can all rest comfortably knowing that the content in this show is fit for human consumption. This week we are on part two of Sell Different by Lee B. Saltz, who is coming on the show next week. Mike, are you looking forward to Lee coming on? Yeah, I always think you get a good perspective when you speak to the authors. Author. Why did I say authors? I've turned into my daughter. The authors. Authors? Authors? Where are you from? Are you staying? I don't know why I said that, but yeah, you always do um, get a good perspective when you speak to the authors. And actually, there's a lot about this book I don't like, but it says it has some very good points in it. You start here on uh, Lee Saltz, we're on chapter eight. Are we on chapter eight? Did we go through chapter seven? I, I think so, yes. Fine. Dissecting the toughest sales objection. Yeah. Um, and he says, the truth is deals are never lost due to price. What do you think? I think sometimes they are. Yeah, I think so too. I get his point that he goes on about because he talks about TCO and return on investment. Um, but I think he'd argue till he was blue in the face that that wasn't the case. I think we're at a point with, you know, the, the economists talk about perfect competition and actually the IT market is designed perfectly to be a victim of perfect competition where actually price is the determining factor on people buy things. Yeah. that You look at the telephone market they introduced this thing in early 2000s called the SIP protocol. And what the SIP protocol meant was that an NEC phone could talk to a Cisco phone. So if I was an NEC user, I could go on by Cisco kit. If I was a Cisco kit, I'd go on by NEC kit. So actually, what did that do to NEC and Cisco? Well, it destroyed them yeah, because <laughs> they could then sell on price. And that's true of a lot of the software market with the integration tools that are available. It will have created a heavyweight race to the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. And the IT market, yeah. particularly on the infrastructure side, so on compute, that creates a race to the bottom. You know, you look at the cloud market, the two main players in that are AWS and Azure. Me and you could set up an AWS practice this afternoon. Yeah, we could. Now, I know people are going to say, well, you know, there's a bit of differentiation on service and on uh, expertise. Find ourselves some consultants on Upwork. Exactly. And we could pile it out and just sell it at lower margin than everyone else. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's going to be some big players out there, like ANS, who are going to say, yeah, that's great and everything, but we've actually done it a million times before. We're more expert. They're going to say, that's like you buying your own bricks from B&Q. Yeah, you could make your own house, but we know how to make it. But there is a point in the IT market where price becomes very important, I think, particularly with the SaaS sales model as well. That partially, that is a price-based sale. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, look, I I bought some golf balls yesterday, Mike, off a company called Seed. Ever heard of Seed? No, I'd just do a Google search. Right. Seed. They are an Irish company. Geese is an ex-Titleist employee, set up a company manufacturing basically Pro V1s with a different label on them. But do you know how much my golf balls were? No. They're £25 for a dozen rather than £50 for a dozen Pro V1s. See, that's an interesting one because it takes into account, it's a good example that, because respectfully, you're a fairly high handicapper still. I'm sure that's going to fall, but right now you're bothered about the price of golf balls. You make a price-based decision. Bit of quality, but a bit of price. Yeah. If you have two, you won't make a price-based decision because you're not bothered about losing the ball because you know you're not going to. Or not very often at all, no. I used to go whole rounds without losing golf balls. Yeah. My mate Kessler goes round. He's got hundreds and hundreds of vice golf balls in his garage because he never loses any. 
I used to have a full bag of Pro Vs that I, uh, <laughs> uh, from my practice bag that I just worn the writing off, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So the point being is, Titleist have lost a deal on price. I was going to buy a massive bulk volume of golf balls at the start of the season, but this is a better price deal. End of. Now, Lee would say it's a price slash value perception conversation, wouldn't he? Yes, he would. I agree. I agree. With and you. I'm sat there saying, well, it's good value. But that also takes into account the fact that you're a different type of buyer to your mate Kesler who didn't lose golf balls. You have different buying criteria. Correct. So I, I don't know. I, like you say, in the IT industry, people lose deals on price. If you sell a commodity product, it's very hard not to fight on price. And it's very easy in a book to say, well, you have to demonstrate value. And I get it. And there's lots of sales literature saying, well, you have to find a leverage point that shows value above and beyond the fact that what you're still selling is commodity. Well, look at what we do, right? So it's not commoditized in any way because every person is unique and has a unique skill set. A lot of candidates are moving jobs based on price. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of very price-led buyers in the job market right now. Absolutely. I like this bit. I thought this was fair enough, the flinch test. I thought that was pretty good, actually. So what he's saying is make a note of how people respond when you talk to them about price, basically. Yeah, I got flinch tested with a client last week that actually we're starting some work on today. Literally, one of the things I need to do this morning is brief the team on it. Client came to us, healthcare company, took spec off them, sent them terms, and then the HR person messaged back saying, best we can do is 15%. I said, oh, I'm really sorry, then I can't work on it. And she came back and went, oh, all right, 20. But it was a flinch test. She wanted to see if I'd flinch. Correct. Now, this bit, I know people say this a lot, set expectations up from the front. Early in the process, they set the expectation that they're not the low price provider. That's fine. But I really think you've got to take into account the buyer persona, you know, Johnny buying golf balls. If the first thing I did to you was say, oh, we're not the cheapest, you go, all right, fair enough, I'll go and find somebody else that is. And you're never going to get into a conversation that then allows you to build value. No. So actually, what a lot of the good salespeople do, they don't lead with price, but they don't lead with price. They lead with quality up front and they stack the price at the back. And I think Lee Saltz would argue that that's more about finding your target clients carefully. Yes, I completely. Well, you know me. I absolutely obsess about target clients. You sent me a lead the other day with a client that we do a load of work with saying, no, listen, they're looking for an inside sales manager. Are you interested? I went, nope. Nope. Just rubbish work. Not interested. Don't want to do it. And they're a really good client as well. But the right target clients are going to understand an upfront premium price conversation. I think that would be the point Lee's making. He's saying, if you're a premium price player, then go, you know, it's a bit like if I sell Aston Martins, I'm not going to go and sell them in Hair Hills. Well, I don't know. Well, I might sell a few round Hair Hills, actually, <laughs> depending on what people are doing for a living. That notwithstanding, you know what I mean? If I'm Aston Martin, I'm going to go and pick my places to sell my product because people know that it's an expensive product. Well, that's the beauty of online advertising, isn't it? Correct. I can pick my target market. And if I'm selling endpoint security, but I think I've got a product that is a premium. It's a bit like uh, we, we did some work with this client and he, he sent me an email one day. And at the bottom of the email, it says sent by superhuman. All right. Superhuman is like this designer email client that's £30 a month to use. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And you can only use it if you're a Gmail customer. But Superhuman have got their market. Their market, from a price perspective, is people who want to be seen as cool and trendy California Silicon Valley startup cool. And they can charge £30 for an email client. 
but what is it? It's an email client. Outlook comes with my Microsoft 365 account. Gmail's email client's not that bad. I prefer Gmail's to Outlook. I'd move to Gmail overnight for our business. Would you? Yeah, 100%. I think the way Drive integrates is so much better. So chapter nine, the ultimate deal killer. What do you make of this? I've just got one more thing on uh, price. And I just wrote on my notes here when I was reading this the other night, I just wrote, nothing negotiates like a fat pipeline. Yeah, very true. Very true. Do you know what I mean? You can talk about price all day. Nothing negotiates price like a fat pipeline. Easy when you've got a big pipeline. It's how much? Yeah, that's how much it is, mate. Well, you know my MO, Johnny, I spend more time on new business than most of the parts. Yeah. 100%. And I just thought he kind of missed the point with that a little bit. That's when you overcome your price objection. There's a subconscious psychological swagger in a price objection. If you're needy, if you've got nothing in your pipeline, you know, often we speak to candidates where they'll go, oh, yeah, why are you leaving? Oh, because we're a badly priced player in the market. And I just immediately know, uh, I know the bad new business hunters. Inevitably. Well, it's a wider book, isn't it? Who make the best salespeople? Full stop, anywhere, in any discipline, people that can do new business. Forget everything else. Even if they're pretty rubbish at the other bit. Don't matter. Just get enough new business. They just tend to win. Exactly. So the ultimate deal killer, I do agree with Lee Saltz exactly on this, is fear of change. Yeah. I agree. Straw poll of all the different things that break a deal for us, for all our clients, for everybody is fear of change. You know, in the first month of the pandemic, all those IT projects, all those people changing jobs, those needs didn't go away. But the changing landscape created a fear of change. What if? I think he's right about that, actually. Yeah, I I agree. I think that's a a very valid point, actually. Very valid indeed. Hmm. And then he talks about he gets into this stuff about client onboarding. And, and, and my only comment on it is, fair enough. Do you know, I've put, it's okay, six out of ten. <laughs> like, I'm not going to do it. Um, well, it kind of doesn't affect our game as much as perhaps it affects others. But I think most of our clients, contacts, people we work with would say, that's just kind of not my department. No, yes and no, because I think he does go on to make a point on page 110. Earlier, I referenced productizing the client onboarding process. Think of your client onboarding methodology as something that is sold during the buying process. Yeah, okay. I think that's fair enough, actually. And making it part of what the customer buys. Yeah, and he said, and further on, can't the salesperson just verbally describe the process? Yes, but it won't be effective. Because actually, it sounds like made up rubbish. I really think it does. Something that I have has proven very useful to me over the years is a follow-up email being very clear with the clients about what's going to happen. Yeah. Whether they become clients or not, you know, and I send the terms and conditions, I send the T's and C's, obviously, but I've got an email template that goes, right, this is exactly what's going to happen. Well, follow-up email. Do you remember I spoke to you last week about that client and I said, I'm really worried that he's going to try and do a hire here on the cheap and he's going to screw it up. Is that the one you've got that you guys working on? No, it's not. Can you remember that last week? So I wrote to them and I said, I'm really worried here. I've looked at my notes. It looks to me like you want to pay at the bottom end of your salary scale, but you're looking for a chief revenue officer in America. And I just wrote, I said, I'm really concerned you're going to end up making a bad hire. And when you get your funding, that's going to really hold the business back. And it's going to be a nightmare for you. And it's going to set you back three to six months. And he wrote back saying, thank you. You've read your notes absolutely clearly. You've listened completely to what was said in the meeting. I think you're right. Let's have a chat later. My gut feel is I want to wait till I get my funding or I might get an interim. But the power of that 
just has built a relationship with that client. Two things. One, I made decent notes in the meeting. My notes were right. Two, I checked my notes with him and he knows I've listened to him and understood him. And then I've been really honest about my concern in my follow-up. And what amazes me is when we do work with candidates on interviews is how few people send emails after an interview unless we tell them to do it. I don't tell anybody to do it. I don't see the point. As I said to a client the other day, you know, if they're £100,000 and they need coaching from me, they're not worth £100,000, full stop. It's amazing how many don't do it. It is, but I don't care. And if they don't do it, they just don't work with them again. You know, it's that simple, really. Then he gets into pilots at the end of this chapter. And he says, why do people do pilots? I said, because they can. Well, I've, I've put here, as I read this, I think it's okay, but very old fashioned and, and not very germane to the modern SaaS sales process. No, in our world... In our world, 30-day free trial, yeah, I can get with Salesforce. I can get with pretty much anybody, I'd have thought. Without talking to a salesman. You know, what we're talking about, active campaign, I bet we could get that on 30 days free trial. Yeah, we did. Exactly, yeah. We did, with onboarding, without talking to a salesman. So in our world, I don't get it. It's just old-fashioned, isn't it, that? It's him being a bit out of touch with the market, I thought. Now, Chapter 11, you'll like this, Johnny. More than 99.999% of salespeople don't do this, but they should. Oh, this is the recap email? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just a little bit ahead on my chapters. Yeah, the email chapter. I mean, uh, and this bit, is abs- this is absolutely exactly what I do. When I send a follow-up email, I do my to-do list. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Your to-do list. This is what you need to do. Next steps. But like I said, Mike, people don't do it. And he's right to recommend it. A lot of people don't do it. Completely agree. And then he's put some very basic stuff, which is very basic, but it's accurate. Formatting, spelling, grammar. I absolutely... You know, I know I'm old-fashioned and my mum was an English teacher, but sometimes I look at the grammar in people's emails and I think, hang on a minute, you know, you're asking this person to pay you £100,000 a year and you didn't start the sentence with a capital letter. I just wouldn't employ you. Yeah, I know. It's insane that, isn't it? I wouldn't employ you, full stop. Or sending an email from their phone. Why why just wait? Tony Hughes mentioned a couple of things when we covered tech-powered sales on that subject. You've got apps like Grammarly where... You know, I've got a mate who had a very, very successful legal career. He is severely dyslexic, but his grammar's still right in writing. And he said the moment Grammarly came out and those kind of technologies, he was all over that. Why? Because he was worried that he was going to misspell stuff. Completely agree. There's no excuse for that kind of bad grammar, bad punctuation. Even if you've got dyslexia, there's kit that will do it for you. Yeah. There's another app called Lavender, which goes through readability of your emails. It's amazing. You could always just send it to your mate, old school, couldn't you? Yeah, just check that for me, mate, before it goes out. Yeah, all right, I'll read that for you. It'll take me two minutes. Yeah, fine. No apostrophe there. Yeah, you just have a reciprocal agreement, don't you? I'm just doing a follow-up email to client. Just give me a once-over on that before it goes. My written English, in terms of its grammar, is absolutely superb. But actually, with important emails, I'll write them, and then I'll do whatever I'm doing, and I'll go back to them a few hours later, read it again before I send it and think, I've made a mistake there. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely. And then chapter 13, customer service is not account management. What do you think to this chapter? You missed out chapter 12. You're about to lose your largest account. Do you not like that? No, I just thought it was dull. Customer service is is not account management. Absolutely. I mean, again... I can't quite work out why this is in the book, though. Maybe it is. It's not here, though, is it? But there's a few chapters like that. You know, his chapter on strategic selling to accounts that have got multi-level decision makers. That's a book, isn't it? Miller-Hyman made it into an entire sales course. Yeah. But, you know, it's relevant to be in here for sure. What's interesting is the modern software company has CSM and account managers. Yeah, they do. There's two separate functions. 
But that's more important in a SaaS ARR model, though, isn't it? You know, this is like selling old SAP, whereas actually most of the market is selling SaaS-based solutions and the companies measure themselves on ARR. So actually, in the modern world, this chapter loses its relevance, really, I think. Yeah, I think that's why I skipped it, because I just thought, not relevant. Most our clients have customer success managers. A lot of them do. You look at the older ones that are selling older stuff, you know, ERP companies, they don't. Self-service analytics companies, they do. But then the self-service, the analytics market is a lot newer than the ERP market. Correct. And it's measured in a different way, isn't it? If you're measuring, if you've got one-year contract for a SaaS-based solution, you've got to have a CSM manager. Whereas if you're selling an ERP implementation that the client's got to live with, and once they've got it, they've got it, you don't have to have one. No, the account manager goes in, the client has a bit of a moan. They then say, well, we'll do five days of consulting. I'll tell you what, I'll discount the consulting work to 500 quid a day from a thousand pound a day as a gesture of goodwill. And they actually screw another two and a half thousand pound out the client. I thought chapter 14 was good, actually. Tell me about this one then. The most productive day of the year for salespeople is the day before they go on vacation. <laughs> so true. So true. Absolutely bang right. We've all done it. Well, everybody does it. You've got to do it. And then the next thing he talks about on page 156 is doctor task management. Ever notice when you go to the doctor that when the doctor enters the consultation room, she's fully prepared to meet with you? And he talks about, you know, the receptionist scheduled the appointment, blah, blah, blah. And actually, that's right, isn't that? That's a nice way of thinking about it. You know, the doctor just does the juice bit and everything else is done by somebody else. Yeah, it's all set up. It's all well set up, isn't it? Now, actually, we can use technology to do that, really. And he's put here, sales task optimization to avoid the missteps associated with doctors performing nurse and receptionist tasks. Make a list of all the responsibilities associated with new client acquisition, retention, and growth. So what have I been doing with my man, Mark? Exactly that. Yeah. What I find fascinating is a lot of companies that, in terms of time management, a lot of companies are talking about this move to a four-day week. And the companies that have piloted it have all said the same thing, which is they've had no dip in productivity. Why? Because of that whole concept of the day before you go on holiday. They make it very clear the targets aren't changing, the goals aren't changing, the goalposts aren't moving. But if you want to work a four-day work, get it done in four days. And people are getting their work done in four days and they're having Friday off. And then there's the other subtext argument, which is maybe they're more productive because they've had a longer weekend and they're fresher. Who knows? But it's amazing. Under pressure, people get more done, don't they? Yes. And a lot of it, you know, we sit at home in sales, particularly in recruitment, actually, a lot of it is peer pressure. How well am I doing against my peers? When you sit in isolation on your own, you're only battling with yourself. Yeah. No, actually, I've been more productive than I've ever been in the past two years, battling and comparing myself against myself. So it works for me, but obviously there's going to be other instances where people need peer pressure, I suspect. I also thought that chapter 15, I've always thought this actually, it's a, it talks about a major flaw when comparing salespeople with athletes. Yeah. Salespeople play the game over and over again, just hoping to be better each time. I think there's some nice similarities to be drawn between salespeople and athletes, but I, I sort of get his point, really. You know, I think he's right. Well, I, I think the other point about comparing salespeople with athletes is most athletes are athletes because actually they work. Yes, and, and people are going to jump down my throat now. Oh, they work so hard. You don't realise most athletes are famous or professional athletes because they have got given good genetics. Exactly, yeah. You know my mate who played rugby at a good level. You know, you've met him. He was genetically built to be a rugby player. 
yeah, genetically gifted, built for rugby. Absolutely. So he was going to always, given his size as a human being, with any enthusiasm whatsoever for the game, going to end up playing the game for money. I wasn't. Me neither. Same with all sports, golf, tennis, cricket. They've all got... Remember Jacob Spencer used to work for us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Genetically gifted. A perfect human being, wasn't he? He actually literally looked like Action Man with his top off. Yeah, he looked like an Action Man, but just an athlete. Built like an athlete, genetically an athlete. He was always going to be good at loads of sports. Whatever sport he took up, he was good at. You know, so as opposed to sales, some of us aren't athletes, actually. That's the beauty of sales. It's a much more level playing field. We have to act like we do it for money. So the question then, Johnny, is are you absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. So the question then, what we're saying about sports people is a lot of it is nature with a little bit of nurture. Yeah. With salespeople, what are we saying? It's more nurture than nature, because that's the difference. There's a bit of nature, isn't there? Well, there's a bit of pre-nurture. You always meet the ones that grew up. Mum and dad were both salespeople or both business people. They went to the right school. They hung around with the children of other business people. And they were always just going to kind of always end up in a senior executive position somewhere. So the book then, Johnny? Um, book, out for me, out of 10, it's a solid 4.5. I was going to give it a five. He's got some good points in there. I'm looking forward to meeting him. He's obviously a good sales guy. Absolutely no doubt. And it's going to be great value when we get Yeah, no show. doubt about it. I thought in parts, you could tell that he hasn't been a seller. I'd be very surprised, actually, if he was a seller in a modern SaaS environment. You know, he's not worked for Salesforce, this fellow, I wouldn't have thought. I don't necessarily like the way... It's, it seems like a very American thing that it starts with some story about his family, trying to draw a comparison between... I just think that's the way the publisher tells them they want the books written. And also, that's part of me that I just don't want that. I'm not bothered about that. Just tell me the fact. And I know that I've got to be careful with myself on it. But it's got some good points on it. You know, the most productive day is the day before you go on holiday. That actually will stick in my head, that. I think, yeah, fair enough, you're right about that. Yeah, I think it's a great conversation to have with yourself some days, isn't it? If you were going on holiday today, what would you get done? You'd get a lot done. Exactly. I also think the other part, whilst I don't necessarily agree with what he was saying about price, but all the decent sales books do this. It puts an onus on, make sure you've got enough stuff in your pipeline, so make sure you're doing enough new business and don't necessarily get drawn straight into price. You know, a lot of the sales books say that, but if you've never read a sales book and you read that, that's fair enough, I think. Yeah. I do wish you'd put nothing negotiates like a fat pipeline, but that's my vernacular. That's the real one because it overcomes all price objections. Yeah, completely. Yeah, you don't want to pay? Great. Well, I've got plenty of clients who do. Thanks. Bye. Next. And that swagger normally overcomes the objection. Overcomes the objection better than any other form of objection handling, attempt to deliver return on investment. Why do you think people queue outside Louis Vuitton? Can I have it for 400 quid? No. Piss off. Mm, agree. But they still queue. Well, that's a slightly different reason. That's that fashion brand statement, isn't it? Yeah, but everybody knows it's expensive and Louis Vuitton know that there's plenty of people queuing up to buy the gear, so they never discount it. I don't know how much the new iPhone costs, I've no idea, but it's got to be a grand, I'd have thought. Yeah, premium product. I reckon this Google Pixel looks half decent, but, you know, why is the iPhone more expensive? There's lots of different reasons, aren't there? But my daughter wouldn't be seen dead with a Google Pixel. Wouldn't be seen dead. And at that, we will see you next week where we're going to interview Lee Saltz. Been an interesting couple of weeks. We we're going to come back to you on Discord with some news on the next few books. Speak to you all soon. Bye bye.